You're listening to Campus Review Radio. So can you begin by going through um, the key points of your book on academic governance? Um, the book uh, situates academic governance within the context of higher education systems more broadly within Anglophone nations, with a particular focus on the UK, the US and Australia. Um, and it focuses on those three nations um, in particular, partly because that's where my empirical data were drawn from, but also because academic governance within those three nations uh, shares some common ancestries, but um, there are also very different uh, political and other social factors. So they make very interesting um, points of comparison. Um, so the book starts off by talking about changes within higher education within each, more broadly, and within each of those three nation states in particular, and how those changes have impacted upon academic governance within universities. So some of those changes include um, the shift from higher education as a public good to uh, being a, a private good for which individual students are responsible and, and therefore should pay an increasing share of the cost, increasing in, internal and external accountability, um, partly to control risk. Governments largely see higher education as a risk in a number of different ways, including in relation to the expenditure of public money. So one of the ways of controlling and managing that risk has been imposing increasing uh, exter uh, external accountability measures upon uh, universities and, and in turn universities then impose them internally. Uh, the adoption of corporate governance practices, partly initiated by government, but also partly in response to changes in governance practices within the public sector. Um, lots of these things have contributed to smaller and less powerful academic boards within universities, especially within um, the UK and Australia. And the other change is the executivisation of universities. So the conversion of what were um, once uh, elected academic leadership roles into professional appointed um, managerial positions. Sometimes people accepting those positions may have been um, practicing academics at, at some point, but maybe not. Um, and you know that has had a particular impact on um, the, the way universities are, are run. And lots of those changes um, have occurred due to huge changes within higher education related, you know, massification, um, increasing financial pressures, particularly within Anglophone nations, governments governments uh, appear willing to contribute less public money that, per student than they used to. And, you know, there's a whole range of uh, forces which impact on the way universities are governed and the pressures that they face. And, and in turn, that, that impacts on um, the way governance works inside universities themselves. So that's the broader hmm. uh, perspective. We've seen um, in all these nations that you've um, uh, looked at, we've seen endless rhetoric about how universities need to be linking with industry, they need to be forming partnerships, yada, yada, yada. So um, how do you think this will affect um, university governance? Mm. Well, um, so I, I didn't particularly within, within this book look in detail about partnerships between uh, universities and industry. Um, but it is something that I'm looking at at the moment in relation to um, a research proposal or some, some research, some additional research that I'm doing. So I can talk about that a little, but not in a huge amount of detail. So um, 
there, there are lots of issues relating to the question that you've asked. So the first um, you know, thing is that governments everywhere talk about the need for increased innovation and they see that as central to uh, the economic performance of universities uh, or the, the economic performance of their nations. And the universities have a key role uh, to play in that. And one of the ways they, they uh, measure innovation is through uh, university um, in industry collaboration, so re research, business collaborations, that kind of thing. However, um, universities often define um, things like entrepreneurialism, so innovation is enacted through entrepreneurialism. U universities often define entrepreneurialism more broadly, um, which sort of sits um, slightly differently to the way governments tend to just define it in more narrow uh, economic terms relating to spin-outs or spin-offs or, you know, sort of dollar uh, contributions. And one of the reasons for that um, slight disconnect uh, is because the financial things are easier to measure. So because they're easier to measure, uh, that's what we measure. And as a result, inadvertently, those measures can then come to define what is meant by uh innovation. So there's a whole, um, there's a whole range of um, things uh, around there. But certainly governments uh, are putting substantial pressure upon uh, universities to increase collaboration in that area and that plays out in the way things like research is funded. Australia is the poorest performing of all nations within the OECD in relation to um, researcher, business and industry collaboration and whilst the UK is considerably better than us, so they, their performance is considerably higher within the OECD rankings, um, their performance has not uh, in, improved in recent years and in fact has decreased slightly. So in fact both governments have significant concerns um, in that area and that uh, in turn you know, places pressures on universities and on uh, university governance uh, internally to respond to that and also influences the way, you know, research is even uh, defined. So what type of research gets funded and, and in turn what doesn't get funded, that kind of thing. And within all these changing governance systems, where um, is the voice of the academic being lost? Okay, so... Um, I, I found through my research that um, there were a number of key changes in academic governance and that those changes uh, as a whole contributed to a significant reduction in academic voice overall, not due to just one simple factor, but due to a whole combination um, of factors. So perhaps if I start by talking about the ways in which um, academic governance has changed uh, in recent years, perhaps in the, in the last 30 years, that might be helpful. It might also be helpful for listeners if I explained what academic governance is. Mm. So academic governance involves uh, decision-making within universities about teaching and research. So governance doesn't produce teaching and research, but it provides the conditions to enable teaching and research to take place. It provides a decision-making framework within which um, teaching and research is able to occur. So it's really central to the core business of universities, to you know the, the key reason why universities exist. But it's changed a lot in recent years due to the pressures that I talked about earlier. So the way that that has manifested is that we've seen um, three, probably three key, three, three key themes have emerged from my research. The first is uh, reduced academic authority. So this is largely due to um, the conversion of what were previously uh, roles held by 
people who were primarily practicing academics, so practicing teachers and researchers, so the conversion of those roles into executive level positions like I described uh, earlier. And um, that translates into a reduction of uh, academic board authority. There's, a, there's been a, a um, you know, faculties have been consolidated and a whole range of changes have occurred within universities which mean that there are fewer academic governance bodies than there used to be uh, and, and um, as a result there's less opportunity for academics to participate in those and those bodies tend to be less powerful than they were uh, in previous times particularly within the UK and Australia within older universities academic boards ran universities uh, during much of the 20th century um, and that is no longer the case of course universities now are huge corporations and uh, you know they have uh, executive leadership and management and that one of the consequences of that has been a big shift in power away from uh, academic boards and a significant reduction in academic authority. Um, the second theme relates to um, diminished academic voice and so some examples of where this occurs uh, in relation to the proportion of practicing academics or people whose primary role is teaching and research um, who sit on academic boards. So. Um, currently within uh, the UK, my data show that on average, 50% uh, of the members of academic boards uh, are uh, executives, thereby virtue of uh, an executive position that they hold. Some of those people might previously have been teachers and research researchers, but many of them may not have been. And within Australia, the figure is about 46% on average. So it does vary from university to university, but that's the aggregated data. And as a result, there are fewer opportunities for ac practicing academics to be members because half of the positions on these bodies are taken up by um, executives. There's uh, also um, deci decisions are increasingly taken in forums outside of academic boards, partly because of the executivisation of universities, vice-chancellors have created vice-chancellors advisory committees, that kind of thing. And as a result, um, decisions are commonly taken elsewhere or are made before they, they even get to the academic board. In the US, they have a, a different governance system to that in the UK and Australia. They have what's called a unicameral system, which means that academic boards can't make decisions in their own right, uh, as they largely can in the UK and Australia. Those um, academic board equivalent bodies must recommend to um, the university president or the vice-chancellor equivalent. And there's been um, a trend within the past 30 years or so um, or towards... Um, some of those decisions, have, so, so I guess you could say that university presidents might be less likely to automatically approve recommendations from uh, academic boards in the US than they might previously have been. It's not to say that they come out in public and say, I don't support the academic board, uh, because that would be considered confrontational. But there are lots of tactics being implemented, such as presidents sitting on recommendations rather than approving them, or sort of stalling, um, all, all kinds of um, tactics that mean that um, academics in the US and uh, academic governance bodies in the US feel that their recommendations are much less likely to be um, implemented uh, than in the past. The third key theme um, is around academic quality assurance and in Australia this is a big issue because the data from the Australian uh, academic boards um, which includes uh, executives and elected academic board members show that academic quality assurance is universally considered to be the most important academic board function. 
Um, it's in all, the term of reference of almost every Australian academic board uh, and, and in the UK as well. But the, the interview data and the data are gathered from academic board documentation indicates that in a, in a, to a significant degree, those functions are actually owned and controlled by, by the senior executive. Um, so academic boards are um, at least partly symbolically responsible for those functions rather than being actively involved in the development and implementation of uh, academic quality assurance frameworks. So there's a disconnect there. In, in both Australia and the US, there are also significant concerns about the impact of accountability, rubrics, metrics, performance measures, however you want to describe them, on uh, what is taught and researched. So what is measured uh, comes to define uh, what practice, good practice is in relation to teaching and research and that in turn limits um, decision making or significantly um, influences decision making around what is taught, uh, how it's taught, what assessment is used, what is researched, um, how that research is uh, published, you know, all those kinds of things. So the, the influence of um, metrics and accountability measures on teaching and research um, has been significant. So in those factors um, come, come together um, to contribute to a, a sort of a, a significant um, decrease in academic voice overall and and there are probably five key ways in which we see that so some of these I've talked about already but just bringing them together so there's a, a decrease in the number and size of uh, academic governing bodies universities have become executivized uh, the imposition of accountability measures um, trends uh, especially in Australia for the domination of academic board meetings by executives just the sheer number of executives at those meetings mean that academics might be less likely to stand for election and feel intimidated during those meetings. They're much less likely to give a dissenting view or to ask a question than they might previously uh, have been. And in an, in an overall sense, strong central control within universities um, has been demonstrated empirically to um, mitigate against academic engagement and entrepreneurialism, which which uh, directly goes against the, what, some of the things that universities most want to achieve and that government, governments most want universities um, to achieve. There was a very interesting study that came out of the Leadership Foundation for Higher Education in the UK recently, um, which looked specifically at this. So, you know, all those factors together um, can contribute to a significant diminution of academic voice within decision-making about academics within universities. But it's also really important to say that every university is different. So these um, trends that I'm talking about are trends in a general sense. Um, so they're not going to be evident within every single university. Um, so for example, universities, uh, older universities may well have seen a significant diminution in the power of their academic board. But in newer universities within places like the UK and Australia, those academic boards may never have been empowered to that extent in the first place. So it's not possible to make you know, huge generalisations and say this has affected every university everywhere, but these are the trends and themes that occur um, in, a, in a very general sense. You mentioned that universities are essentially big corporations now. Um, most universities would firmly reject that label as they're, as they're very keen to still portray themselves as a university. So could you just um, discuss a little bit more about that? 
Okay, so um, I guess you, in in saying that, um, they are just be behaving more like corporate entities, where the the significant focus within universities, by necessity, is on um, financial matters and matters of reputation, um, and. And so those are often the key concerns about um, corporations. U universities in Australia are, are statutory corporations, so they 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 are not publicly listed. With, they don't have shareholders. Uh, they don't you know make profits for shareholders. But they but they are actually legally their corporations, and the government does consider them um, that way. So. I guess this comes back to the issue of um, education for the public good uh, or education for the private good. And there's been lots of debate um, uh, about that recently within academic circles. But in public, you don't tend to see that very often. It's it's not something which is debated as much as, as, as I and many other academics would like uh, that to be. So... You know, we would think that that would be great if we could have a discussion, uh, in, if there could be a discussion in our parliament about uh, universities um, and education, higher education, um, as a public good. Within other uh, nations, so for example, uh, in Europe, in, in Germany, for example, and other nations within some other nations within Europe, higher education is fully funded, so students don't pay fees. Uh, governments uh, contribute all of the cost uh, of um, uh, of uh, you know running universities. So there there is a different attitude toward the role and place of um, higher education within society. There, it's considered to be absolutely central. Governments within anglophone nations, and particularly within the UK, the US, uh, and Australia, have demonstrated much less willingness to do that. There's been much more of a view that education bestows uh, a personal benefit uh, upon graduates uh, that they um, are able to uh, use to access higher paying jobs than they would otherwise have been able to do, even though the graduate premium has been decreasing um, in recent years. And as a result, they are less willing than they were once to contribute significantly to the cost, particularly of teaching. Within the UK, the government has almost totally stopped funding teaching within um, universities, but except in areas of science and mathematics. Um, in Australia, there, there's still, of course, our government still does fund teaching within universities, but universities would say that there's significant underinvestment, that they're under enormous pressure in relation to uh, earning enough money to keep operating in the way that they would like to, and that international students, that the income from fee-paying international students has been um, used to uh, shore up university financial bottom lines. Um, so that there has been a significant um, shift uh, in, in relation to that. That has also affected university governance. So um, within universities, the University Council, the overarching governing body, its significant focus is on outward-looking matters related to strategic planning, reputation and finance. Um, and those are considered to be the central things that matter within, um, within universities on a day-to-day -day basis. Th those are the pressures that keep vice-chancellors awake at night. 
Um, whereas things like, especially things like teaching um, and, and some matters relating to research uh, are more internal matters. Of, of course, they're central to universities, but they're, they're, the pressures associated with those uh, are, are not probably as great on a day-to-day basis. And, uh, you know, views reflecting this were borne out in the interviews that I uh, conducted, um, both with, with uh, university executives uh, academics and uh, executives. Do you think we'll ever see the conversation shift in Australia to um, seeing education as a as a public good, seeing higher education as a public good? Um, look, I really hope so, and uh, and and most university executives and academics would uh, agree with that. We we all would really hope so, because although though we might have slightly different priorities on a day to day basis, we we are all interested in. Um, the import, we, we all see education, higher education, as being fundamentally important for our society and not just for uh, economic reasons. So we would hope so, but there's, we're not seeing any indication um, of that. So, for example, from either side of politics, um, you know, there would have to be a significant shift in in, in policy, um, government policy, and you know, there's there's no evidence of that uh, within within our, our own country or within the two key countries that we tend to compare ourselves to, unfortunately. Nothing on the horizon.